Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we got our first look at Revan, the Jedi entered the Mandalorian Wars, and we found out the Crucible's disturbing history and Sith origins. Now, in episode 21, we answer all the lingering questions raised in the first 46 issues of the KOTOR comic, and finally complete the series after 10 episodes. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. A brief programming note... Hey, it's our first one, officially anyway. Um, This episode will run a little longer than usual because we're going to cover Demon and the 2012 follow-up miniseries War, which is only five issues. Um, And that will finish up all of the Knights of the Old Republic comics, and then we can move on to the main event next time. If you've read ahead... um, You know that there are two Lost Tribe of the Sith stories that occur in 3960 BBY. However, uh, we've put off Knights of the Old Republic and the sequel, The Sith Lords, far too long, and that ends next episode. If you want a convenient excuse, it's because the Lost Tribe stories occur on cash, removed from the rest of the galaxy. But it's really because we just love Knights of the Old Republic too damn much. We're assuming you'll give us a little leeway when, uh, when this runs outside the Goldilocks zone for podcast length. That's not a thing. We made it up. If it is a thing, someone beat us to a bad punch. But good for them. So today we're starting with Knights of the Old Republic comic Demon by John Jackson Miller. It's a four-issue arc released in 2009 and 2010. It's the final arc of the Knights of the Old Republic comic. It mainly focuses on answering the many questions surrounding Jariel's backstory and the second greatest show trial in galactic history after Ula Keldromas, the war crimes tribunal of Dr. Demigol. We have a lingering Sith artifact, the truth about Demigol, the truth about how Griffin Slisk survived Sirocco, the truth about what Zane did for a month after Vindication, the truth about Roland Dyer, the truth about how force sensitivity is conveyed, and answers to every question in Jariel and Chantique sorted past. It's all included. Let's do this. Our old characters are Zane, Jariel, Roland Dyer, Griff, Slisk, LB, Shell, Jelavan, Malak, Dr. Demigol, Baranjar, Captain Pete, Tilato, Tilato, whatever. De Scullyard. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Exar Kun, Vodos Yoskbas, Ulik Keldroma, Mandalore the Indomitable, probably others. Our new characters for sure include Antos Werek, a Zeltron teacher who runs the New Generation Academy on Osadia. It's the same one who sold Shantique into slavery in the last arc. There's more than meets the eye about this one, though, and there's Sybil. Warwick's Zeltron lover and eventual wife. Our old locations are Coruscant, War Tandel, Shurza, Flashpoint Station, Quar, and Arcania. Our new locations, we will be visiting Osadia. It is a forested, off-snowy world in the fairly remote part of the core worlds. It contains little advanced life outside of the New Generation Academy. There's Chandrila. New to the podcast, we briefly visit Mon Mothma's homeworld and we're indoors the entire time. Iskadrell, homeworld of the Iskaloni, briefly visited in a flashback. The Ethor system, home of the planet Ethor and Ethorian species, but we won't see any of that. We're visiting an asteroid mining station on the edge of the system. It's our first visit on the podcast, but definitely won't be the last. And our timeline is 3963 before Battle of Yavin. There will be multiple flashbacks, most of unknown years in the past. 
that we can pinpoint 3996, 3964, and earlier in 3963. The story. Demon begins with a flashback to 3996 BBY, and we see Exar Kun using his double-bladed lightsaber to do battle with his former master, Vodosiusk Boss, on the floor of the old Senate building. While a new building plays host to official Senate business these days, the old Senate chamber has become a heritage site, only used for very large, important events. Wow, that place seems like a perfect place to host the show trial of the notorious Mandalorian war criminal, Dr. Demigal, who just roused from a months-long coma. Demigal, still woozy from the coma, tells anyone that will listen that this is a case of mistaken identity and that he's not the real Demigal. He pleads to speak with the Jedi who helped him on Flashpoint and who can help him clear up this <clears throat> and who can help him clear up this mess, but it is to no avail. No one in the Republic is willing to help him out, especially not Malik, who has returned to Coruscant to testify against the Doctor. Zane and Griff have also been called as witnesses and have Slisk and LB in tow. Carrick and Malik briefly catch up with Zane. Uh, Carrick and Malik briefly catch up with Zane saying that he and Jorail parted ways after a difference of opinion as Malik heads off to testify. Before doing so, he informs Zane that the Republic retook the Aminoth system and was able to salvage the wreck of the Arcanian legacy. Tensions are high for everyone as the crew of the Hot Prospect is falling apart. Zane, Jariel, Griff, LB, Roland, and Slisk have had a lot of adventures together, but all good things must end. Malik already left on awkward terms, and after Zane and Jariel's falling out on Volgax, the situation only seemed to deteriorate for everyone on board. They all decided to split up just before the arrival on Coruscant with Roland and Jariel heading off on their own. After Malik's departure, Griff accuses Zane of embezzling funds from their partnership after discovering that the money Zane's father was supposed to be managing for them was missing. Zane admits he took, took them, but says it was for a special project and the money was supposed to be repaid before the Griff noticed. The two then break down in a heated shouting match about the many big secrets they've been keeping from one another despite being business partners and best friends. Where was Zane for a month after Vindication? How did Griff and Slisk survive Sirocco? After a heated back and forth, Griff relents and proceeds to tell Zane the story of their improbable escape from Sirocco, an escape that also saved thousands of Republic soldiers in the process. If you remember back in episode 14, we told this, the story of the Battle of Sirocco and the Mandalorians nuking it from orbit. Zane tried to warn Griff, but it was too late, and the mess ship they were flying, the Little Bavoli, was destroyed, never taking off. That's because the ship didn't have enough fuel, which Slisk realized when Zane's last-minute warning came in. Slisk had a panic attack and then went into a sort of trance, hell-bent on ensuring he would honor his life debt to Griff. Slisk picked Griff up, threw him over one shoulder, and bolted for a Republic ship that was ready to fly. The only problem? The ship had no pilots because they were on sleep shifts below and couldn't be found in the panic. Needing a way off-world and knowing how to fly, Slisk barreled through the guards and onto the ship. He jammed the cockpit door closed and flew he and Griff to safety, along with half of a Republic battalion that was nervously waiting for liftoff and saw a Trandoshan carrying a Snivian frantically onto their ship and pilot, pilot everyone to safety as nukes showered the planet around them. This is a weird and fucking funny comic. After they fled to safety, Griff and Slisk were interviewed by Republic officers on Chandrilla, 
but nine recognized Griff as a previous fugitive, and the Republic made a surprising proposal. They wanted to use the story of an unlikely pair who ran a popular mess ship on Sirocco and to then bravely saved hundreds of Republic soldiers in the escape as the face of a new propaganda campaign. Despite Revan's mercy coup, mercy core of Jedi entering the war, the Mandalorians were still nearly unstoppable and would be for another year after. Thus, the propaganda effort was aimed at boosting flagging morale after so many consecutive losses to the Mandalorians. The Republic then developed Holovids merchandise and even restaurants about, around Benegriff Goodvalor and his Trandoshan sidekick, Griff and Slisk's alter egos. They've been making money on it ever since, but Griff didn't tell Zane because it was a state secret and it was a long story, etc. Coincidentally, this walk-and-talk argument takes them to Griff's big new patriotic-themed restaurant on Coruscant, and it resolved the mystery of how Slisk and Griff escaped Sirocco under such dire circumstances. As the group sit down, Zane and Griff entertain the idea of splitting up. What with Griff and Slisk's new propaganda efforts and Zane's mysterious project, but LB's about to table that discussion. After Zane makes a throwaway comment about the broken hand LB received when lifting a camper into the last resort back in the Flashpoint arc, LB casually says that Roland the Mandalorian who aided them at Flashpoint is not the same Roland who has been traveling with them since that time. But that's ludicrous. He would have had to keep up the charade for eight to ten months, and how could a loader droid with PTSD know that? Uh, well... LB may not know a lot of things, but loader droids absolutely know the weight of anything they lift. And after Flashpoint Station, Roland, who we will now call New Roland, weighed exactly 17.4 kilos less than pre-Flashpoint Roland, or old Roland. LB carried both Roland, both Rolands on two consecutive days in campers' secret loading compartments on the last resort. And if you wonder why we two Americans are using metric terms... For everything, it's because the Star Wars galaxy uses metric terms. I don't know why. I just thought of that. It works out. They won't adopt the Imperial system until much later. Oh, they will never adopt it. I get it. <laughs> so Griff, Zane, and Slisk dismiss LB's claims as outlandish. If it's true, they would have noticed, right? And why didn't LB say anything? LB's reasoning is simple. He didn't want to, and they didn't ask. LB still doesn't trust anyone, but he at least likes Zane enough to tell him about the two Rolands now. After some initial hesitation, Zane, Griff, and Slisk each began to recall new Rolands' idiosyncrasies from their travels. From this, the three piece together a shocking revelation that will once again throw Coruscant into chaos. First, Slisk remembers new Rolands' considerable knowledge of Trandoshan physiology, which was on display after saving his life following the encounter with the tiny fox set. It's not a big thing, it's just that there aren't really really Trandoshan Mandalorian, so he wouldn't have picked up that medical knowledge in the field. Next, Griff discusses New Roland's curious interest in medically related subjects and his standoffish about even mentioning them. Subjects like his personal chemistry lab, you know, this can both be explained, sure they're unlikely, but not concrete proof of anything. Zane's revelations are a bit more difficult to dismiss, unfortunately. Sane specifically remembers two events in brief flashbacks. In late 3964, just after Carrick and old Roland liberated the revanchist Jedi from Dr. Demigal's torture lab on Flashpoint Station, Zane and Malik waited outside while old Roland went back inside to retrieve Demigal's unconscious body. When Roland returned with the doctor, Roland said he had to rough up Demigal to get him back in the suit. Seems like a pretty convenient time to switch bodies, huh? 
than the kicker from just a few months earlier, when the Willowall was attacking Coruscant during the Vindication arc. As the ship was being battered by Republic fire, New Roland shouted at Carrick, urging him to change course and calling him, quote, human twice. That's not a big deal. It's just that Zane saw old Roland without his helmet on prior to the rescue at Flashpoint, and old Roland was most certainly a human. That's when Zane puts it all together. New Roland is no human. He's Demigal, a non-human. At Flashpoint, the Doctor must have drugged and switched armor with Roland Dyer when he went back into the station. After New Roland returned with fake Demigal, he boarded the last resort and lived as an imposter amongst the crew for months. Worst of all, he's alone with Jarael, the woman he's been weirdly obsessed over for months. But why would Demigal, a Mandalorian scientist, care about an orphaned Arcanian offshoot? Now, instead of splitting up, the gang's got their most important mission ever, rescuing a real Roland Dyer from a sham war crimes tribunal and using his knowledge of Demigal to locate and aid Jarael. Time is of the essence, however, as Demigal's trial has already begun. Malik, in a uniquely shitty mood even for him, is not so much testifying as treating the defendant as a hostile witness, enumerating the doctor's many crimes. The Jedi, moving far beyond attesting to his own personal experiences, begins enumerating each of Demigol's alleged crimes before the tribunal. Finally, Roland Dyer, tired of being falsely identified and framed, proclaims his innocence and angrily breaks his restraints. Unwilling to allow a repeat of Ulic Haldroma's trial, Malik used the force to subdue the defendant, but in his rage, threw Roland across the chamber and into a column. Dyer, showing some of his characteristic presence, says that Malik can't beat the Mandalorians in a fair fight, and after the Mandalorians are gone, what will stop Malik and the Jedi from turning on the Republic? Seeing their enemy on the ground, the assembled masses in the Senate chamber begin to form a lynch mob to finish Malik's work. Before the mob could overrun their position, Coruscant guards stepped in, creating a perimeter around the defendant and moving him to safety on the landing pad outside the building. Outside, the guards chain Roland to a nearby speeder to await the defense minister heading the proceedings, but a guard piloting the speeder takes off. Roland is utterly shocked to see that the guards who kidnapped him are none other than Griff and Zane, and they need his help. Somewhere in hyperspace, Jarile is oblivious to the danger posed by Demigal. In fact, when New Roland finally reveals his face to her, she's ecstatic. She immediately recognizes the man she knows as Roland Dyer as Antos Wirik, the mysterious Zeltron, Zeltron teacher who she was taken from as a child. Demigal, it seems, is a master of disguises. Not only did Demigal successfully pull the switcheroo and frame Roland Dyer for his crimes, he's really a Zeltron named Antos Wirik who sold his daughter Shantique into slavery and was Jarile's teacher before her kidnapping. Somehow he juggled all those balls and kept those secrets from the crew and most of the galaxy. Well, he did until Roland woke up and Zane's partial crew stumbled onto his plan. After Wirik tells Jarile a tastefully edited version of his past, the two discuss the possible location of Jarile's old classmates. Chantique told Zane that they were somewhere, quote, ironic, unquote, and Jarile suggests Osadia, the location of the old school. Wirik agrees and locks, in the, and locks the coordinates in, and the two make for Asadia, ostensibly to rescue the old students from slavery, but mostly so Demical can have his final revenge on the Crucible. That solves the identity of the mysterious Zeltron teacher from the Academy in the name of the heretofore unknown world on which it was located. Of course, this wouldn't be a climactic arc without a full-issue supervillain origin story, so here comes the tale of Dr. Demigal and Mr. Weir. Back in Coruscant, Malik leads soldiers through the streets in search of the escaped defendant and any accomplices. Thankfully, Zane, Griff, and Roland are able to hide in a seemingly abandoned warehouse until Dyer can 
hold a coherent conversation. After Roland Rouse is ready to talk, Zane explains what they know, but says they need info on Demigol, which is good because Dyer has it in spades. Hell, Demigol was one of the main reasons he ran and began to question the Mandalorian cause in the first place. Demigol the Butcher and Cassus Fett the Trickster are not the type of lieutenants that the Mandalore would normally cultivate, and Mandalore the Ultimate has promoted both. Roland had to know why. Further, he needed to know why Mandalore had prosecuted the war in such a strange manner, not befitting a typical Mandalorian campaign. Again, why? This is where Roland begins to tell the real origin story of Antos Rick, a.k.a. Dr. Demigol. Dyer ran and was caught at least seven times, so he has had a lot of time to ask questions, and that's how he knows so much. As a child, the Zeltron Antos Wirik was taken as a slave by the Iskaloni, a nomadic tribe of cyborgs who took slaves as live practice dummies for cybernetic experimentation. That's a real sentence. Wanting to save his own life, Wirik offered to assist his cyborg captors in their unscrupulous surgical endeavors. Thus, the boy grew without the usual social interaction that sparks empathy normally, uh, nor the special em- empathic abilities that Zeltron exhibit almost innately. Almost. The Escaloni kept the young surgeon around and taught him much of their homeworld, and taught him much, but their homeworld, Iskadrell, was attacked by the Mandalorians sometime before the Great Sith War, and a teenage Wirik was liberated. Taken into Mandalorian service, he was taught medicine by their doctors and learned martial arts from Mandalore the Indomitable himself. In 3996, Wirik was even present for the duel on Kuar when the dark Jedi Ulic Keldroma defeated Mandalore the Indomitable in single combat. Wirik was shocked. How could his hero, the Mandalore, be defeated? He decided it must, it must have been the Force, and he had to know what made the Force so powerful. That day, Wirik snuck into Ulic's cabin and went through his belongings, hoping to find the secret to unlocking the Force. Instead, he found only a single old Jedi robe. It was a robe Keldroma always carried, so Wirik reasoned it might carry some genetic material with information about the Force. Before he could investigate further, however, the Great Sith War ended in defeat and death for the Mandalorians, and Entos Wirik fled for the Republic. The young Zeltron fought in many battles, but... With me, in many battles with Mandalorians, but like so many others, shed his armor to save his life when when defeat became inevitable. He kept the robe, though. And an unscrupulous yet brilliant scientist, Warwick was immediately offered sanctuary by the Arcanians and came close to cracking the case. However, the Zeltron was caught up in the Arcanian pure-blood-led purge that removed all Arcanian offshoot and other alien students and faculty from Arcanian universities. To Wirik's surprise, he found that many of his former colleagues, all brilliant Arcanian offshoots, continued their research in the unforgiving offshoot mining camps. Unsurprisingly, desolate, snow-covered mining camps and decades-old equipment don't make for ideal working conditions, but the offshoots liked Wirik and took him in. It took months, but Wirik found a single strand of hair on the robe and, surprisingly, discovered that the robe didn't belong to Ulik but to his Arcanian master, Arkajath. After Master Arca was killed and became one with the Force, Keldroma carried his master's robe as a keepsake, even after falling to the dark side. Frustration soon set in for Warwick, however, as his research stalled due to poor conditions and bad equipment. By now, research into the power and mysteries of the Force was Warwick's reason d'etre, so he resolved to find a patron. Many of the offshoot researchers agreed to forfeit their own work to help with Warwick's 
research of the force because, frankly, state-of-the-art facilities in new homes sound better than the open-air concentration camp where the purebloods kept them. We're sorry this keeps uncomfortably coinciding with real-world events, but they were concentration camps, and, well, this is a people's history of the old republic. After securing a team loyal to his research priorities, we're set about securing a patron who could provide all that he'd promised and had all that he'd promised and he'd already had the perfect candidate in mind. The once and future Demigol knew that Mandalore the Ultimate had been rebuilding the Mandalorians on Duxun since 3996, and at some point unknown before the Mandalorian Wars began in 3976, Warwick made an enticing proposal to his old comrade. In exchange for cutting-edge research and medical facilities and a safe, secluded place to call home, Warwick and his team would provide the Mandalorians with an army of Force-sensitive soldiers, Mandalorian Knights. Mandalore jumped at the opportunity, especially given Warwick's previous service for the Mandalorians. To complete his objective, Warwick and his team were provided with an uncharted world on the edges of the core system called Osadia. To build an army of Mandalorian knights, the mad scientist would grow a series of clones from an Arcanian pureblood host to match Arkajath's pureblood genetic makeup. Master Arka's DNA would be spliced in while the clones were still in an embryonic stage, thus imbuing them with the Force somehow? As Zane helpfully interjects, the Force doesn't work like that. It can't be transferred from a living Force-sensitive to another individual via blood transfusion or DNA injection. Yeah, we heard it too. If making Force-sensitives were that easy, they would have been breeding them in test tubes for years. But Warwick and Mandalore didn't know that. Not so brief aside, uh, there are, in Legends and Canon, there are three methods by which an individual gains Force sensitivity, and therefore three groupings of Force-sensitive individuals. The first method is the random and completely unknown genetic mutation or evolutionary mechanism that causes random individuals to be born Force-sensitive. Whatever the hell it actually is, and the reason it grants Force-sensitivity to certain species in much higher rates than others are both little understood questions at best. This force group, this first group includes any force sensitive individual born to non force sensitive parents like Zane Carrick, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ahsoka Tano, Bastila Shan, and as of this recording, Ray. By a wide margin, the first group is the largest. The second method by which force sensitivity is conveyed is also the most controversial, at least to the Jedi, procreation. In the Star Wars galaxy, as a seemingly unwritten rule, force sensitives beget more force sensitives and individuals who are extremely strong in the force produce younglings with very powerful connections to the force, usually. As far as we know, this method has a uh, greater than 99% success rate with only three exceptions in all of Legends and none so far in canon. This group might seem larger because of how many big-name characters both in this podcast and Star Wars generally are included. Big names like Luke and Leia, Ben Skywalker, Cade Skywalker, Ben Solo in canon, and Jason and Jaina Solo in Legends, Vima Sunrider, Ulick and K. Keltroma, and Lucian Dre. The third and final method occurs when an individual is artificially imbued with Force sensitivity and is the only method known to convey Force sensitivity beyond the embryonic or genetic levels. Again, however that works. Examples include Savage O'Press, who was given powers in the Dark Side by the Night Sisters in the Clone Wars animated series, uh, certain rare relics, and 
members of the Reborn, a cult Kyle Katarn fought in one of the Jedi Knights video games. Uh, too long to read version. You can't convey force sensitivity via blood transfusions or DNA splicing, even in the embryonic stage. But remember, Warwick and Mandalore don't know this. Roland later says that the Arcanian researchers figured it out, but Warwick didn't until it was way too late. Continuing Demigold's backstory via Roland's exposition, the Doctor's frustrations again began to mount because no Force-sensitive clones would grow. Initially, both he and the team believed they had solved the riddle when they made a shocking discovery. Master Arca's DNA was incompatible with pure-blood Arcanian clones because Arca wasn't a pure-blood Arcanian, he was an offshoot. One of the myriad species of offshoots who were bred with Cephi blood, giving them pointed elf-like ears. The pure-blood Arcanians couldn't bear for the galaxy to know the true heritage of their greatest hero. Using the immense power of the Adaska family and the Arcanian government, the pure-blood supremacists edited every picture, video, and even description of Master Arca they could find to remove any hint of his offshoot features. Arcanian zeal on the subject was such that, sometime before 4000 BBY, Arcanian surgeons used non-consensual plastic surgery on the Jedi Master to mend his ears to be more rounded like a pureblood. Arca was under anesthesia, receiving surgery to repair severe burns received in a fire. But you didn't see that reveal coming, to be fair, why would you? But, you know, still. Arca's heretofore unknown offshoot DNA was causing problems for the clone since offshoots and purebloods can't interbreed. Lucky for him, many of his offshoot researchers had begun coupling up, and one pregnant couple allowed Warwick to introduce death DNA to the child in vitro. After years of trying, Warwick and his team successfully introduced Master Arca's DNA in utero, and the baby girl was named Edessa, or Triumph in the Arcanian language, to mark the occasion. Zane chimes in that, Jer- that Edessa was Jeriel's birth name, and Roland affirms that Warwick considered the child to literally be his triumph and the first successful genetic clone of Arkajeth. Soon, more children were born to offsir- offshoot researchers who were likewise related to Jeth and thus considered child force prodigies. If you're wondering why the parents might allow this, the Arcanians considered Arkajeth to be a mythic hero, and now that these offshoots uh, knew that he was actually one of their long-oppressed species, they jumped at the chance. Also, they didn't know that Warwick was a mad scientist yet with no compunction with no compunction of conscience until he was already on a deadly rampage. Soon, however, Weirik ran low on pregnant offshoot researchers to supply his army of Mandalorian knights, so the Zeltron doctor began paying slavers to supply enough offshoot children. Weirik's greed and lust to create an unstoppable army of force users would be his downfall, however. He worked with Dayskill Yard, but didn't plan on the Crucible stabbing him in the back. One day, when he was off-world, the Crucible attacked the Osadia Academy and dragged all of his students, including Jeriel, into slavery. After the attack, the researchers who survived figured out that Wirik had invited the Crucible there in the first place, and they weren't pleased. After all, Wirik may have lost his little project, but they lost their children. As we said earlier, the offshoot researchers didn't learn about Antos Wirik until it was too late, and the Zeltron killed all the researchers he could find. Losing those students sent Wirik over the edge. He once again began to show the penchant for sadism and sociopathy, which he picked up as a child slave. That eventually led to his far more famous and infamous alias, Demigol, 
where it searched the galaxy for his students but couldn't find them and eventually rejoined the Mandalorian cause, becoming their top scientist and eventually Mandalore's second lieutenant after Cassus Fett. At some point, Wirik, for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist and took up the moniker Demigal, meaning flesh carver in the Mandalorian language. With that, Roland brought us up to speed on the past 40-ish years of Antos Wirik's life, and that's a lot to remember about someone. After learning all that, Roland began questioning Fett's history too, but that was cut short after meeting Zane and Shurja and their subsequent mission to Flashpoint Station. Following that, Roland confirmed Zane's theory regarding his capture. Dyer left Zane and Malak and went inside the station to retrieve Demigol's unconscious body from a broom closet. Unfortunately, the mad doctor had recovered and got the drop on Roland, drugging him. Roland briefly saw Demigol without his helmet before losing consciousness. The doctor was a Zeltron raving about the Arcanian offshoot Jariel being one of his former pupils and that he had to protect her. Zane fills Dyer in on a few key details he's missing. Roland knew that Weirik's school used slavers, but he had no idea the Zeltron would mess with an organization as bad as the Crucible. Carrick also states that Jarile and Shantique were at the school together, but that Shantique, unlike the other students, was sold into slavery on Osadia. Finally, Roland connects all the dots between Shantique, Weirik, and Jarile based on something he heard during his first round of questioning. Early in the work on Osadia, uh, Antos became engaged to a Zeltron woman named Sybil, one of the only other non-offshoot uh, researchers on the project. Around 3990 BBY, the woman gave birth to a baby girl who became one of the earliest attempts to create Force-sensitive children or clones by splicing them with Archegest DNA. Though Sybil loved the girl, Warwick was disgusted with her as he perceived the child to be a quote, failure, who wasn't Force-sensitive and exhibited early symptoms of in his mind, in his mind, mental instability. When Edessa was born and began to pick up skills quickly, as one might assume a force prodigy in the line of Archegeth might, he fully neglected his daughter. Shantique, as she became known, hated Edessa and the other offshoot children that her father favored and became a schoolyard bully. Now that she was disrupting his experiments with quote, good children, Wirik had no further use for his daughter and willingly sold her into slavery with the Crucible as payment for more offshoot slave children. The loss of their daughter caused Sybil, by now Wirik's wife, to commit suicide. He will be, he'll be in quiet for, he'll, oh my goodness, he will be in for quite the surprise when he finds out she's force sensitive, as Zane discovered in the Destroyer arc. All told, Wirik sold his daughter into slavery, caused his wife's suicide, and psychologically destroyed whatever bright future Shantique might have had without his meddling. Shantique spent years twisting these memories into an intense hatred of the child Odessa who received all of Wirik's fatherly love that Shantique craved. Also, because they were both spliced with Archegeth's DNA at the embryonic stage, Shantique and Jariel were, in some strange way, related. Despite their animosity, Jariel and Shantique were more alike than they realized, even sharing Archegeth's original pointed ears, which appear to have been a dominant trait passed from the Jedi Master's heavy blood. Roland is outraged children are considered sacred to the Mandalorians, and he's ready for his chance to crush the Mad Doctor once and for all. That's one problem. Osadia is a hidden world, and none of them know where it is, and they don't really have the resources to find it. Hell, it's so secret it doesn't even show up on charts of the galaxy and is only given a vague grid coordinate location in the Essential Atlas. 
Besides, Zane's already pressed his luck with the Jedi and turned down their offer to return, and the Republic is a non-starter. They can't take the story public because the Republic believes that Roland is Demigol. He laid in a hospital bed on Coruscant for months while in a coma wearing no mask to the Republic. Roland is Demigol until suitable alternative is produced. The group can't even leave the warehouse they snuck into earlier that Zane coincidentally owns. To that end, Shell Delvin shows up with a gift, a disguise for Roland. It's a cheap knockoff of Dyer's real armor that Zane and Griff's partnership licensed and sold as costumes after Demigol won the tandem open. The event made Roland a celebrity and intergalactic sports hero to billions. Even though Dyer was in a coma, his name and armor most certainly were not. Finally, Zane, Roland, Griff, and the rest of the gang are on the same page about Demigol, Jiraiel, and Osadia. A child robbed of youth and innocence forced to make a terrible choice to join, to join slavers to survive, who was then able to escape but chose to return to the old ways and visit the same suffering on a new generation of children. Warwick and Shantique are so alike, they have the same desperately tragic supervillain backstories. Roland's flashback by exposition also answered a number of loose questions that weren't tied up in vindication. Questions like, who is Demigol? How did Antos Wirik, a Zeltron teacher, become Dr. Demigol, a Mandalorian war criminal? How did Wirik join the Mandalorians in the first place? Why was he so fascinated with the Jedi? What's the purpose of the Academy on Osadia? Why was fake Roland so protective of Jiraiel? Zane's month-long absence following vindication remains unanswered, however. Coincidentally, now is the perfect time for Zane to introduce Griff, Roland, Slisk, and Elby to the Rogue Moon Project and explain why he owns his CD windowless warehouse. The warehouse is, unsurprisingly, a front for Zane's underground bat cave, complete with a false floor platform that descends slowly toward his lair. Instead of using his enormous wealth to become an adrenaline junkie bounty hunter, Zane and his team monitor the holonet and other channels for distress calls from the needy. After Zane turned the Jedi down, he realized no one was looking out for the poor and powerless across the galaxy. So, using some of the funds he and Griff had made, Zane took the month off after vindication to set up the Rogue Moon Project, with the assistance of the family members of the slain Padawans. Parents and siblings chip into monitor frequencies, make freighter runs, and Child Televin even uses her connections working with Senator Garabas to help out. Zane gets a new lightsaber before the mission, which causes Slisk to remember something he found while cleaning the hot prospect. Before they split up, Slisk found a microtag that fake Roland had dropped in the ship. Griff recognizes the microtag. It's from one of the Sith artifacts they stole from the Covenant Warehouse on Ordrin to try and prove Zane's innocence. It's just two problems. The first is that the microtags and artifacts are covered in a nullifying resin to negate their powers, and there's no resin to be found. The second and far worse problem is that the miss the artifact is missing, and it's the fucking double-bladed lightsaber of Exar Kun. I bet you didn't see that coming. Okay, you might have because it was heavily shadowed, but it's still really cool. Uh, the microtag isn't done providing bad news, though. The lightsaber is extremely dangerous, especially to force sensitives who would be corrupted by its strong dark side taint. Yes, I heard it too. Griff and Slisk realize that Wirik used the chemicals he picked up on Wartandel to melt the nullification resin. Zane is distraught because he and Roland have concluded that Jiraiel is some sort of force amplifier due to Master Arca's strength in the force and her own, and her own natural abilities. 
But Jiraiya is also untrained in the Force, and even strong Jedi fall to the dark side from relics like this. Worse yet, they need to find Osadia immediately, and no one knows where it is. Even the old offshoot researchers Roland talked to were kept in the dark. Needing to assist Jiraiya quickly, Zane decides to call in every favor that he has left to catch to catch Crucible Fleet Captain Day Schoolyard, who knows the coordinates to Osadia and is enough of a liability to give the info up. They will then assist Jiraiya, stop Demigol, and clear Roland's good name. Carrick hatches a plan involving Roland, Cassius Fett, Admiral Saul Carath, the Mandalorian fleet, the Republic fleet, and one greedy slaver. Across the core system on the hidden world of Sadia, Jariel and Warwick run recon on the former New Generations Academy. It's being protected by crucible enforcers at every entrance, including Master Protector Barn Jar. Jariel thinks they need more firepower to take the school, suggesting that Warwick wholeheartedly agrees with, producing two gifts for Jariel. The first is a set of body armor that Warwick has been building for some time. It's tailored to fit Jariel perfectly. It's helpful in all, but form-fitting body armor requires specific measurements or very astute guesses, and that's creepy as hell. The second gift is the double-bladed lightsaber of Exar Kun. Remember, Kun's blade was blue, not red, and Jariel would have no way of knowing the Sith. The weapon was a Sith artifact removed from its nullifying resin and microtag. The saber is also a perfect fit for Jariel's fighting style, which usually involved long two-handed staves. After a quick wardrobe change, Jariel and Warwick storm one of the doors, killing the Crucible guards easily. Warwick then tortures Barnjar for information on the missing students, and when the details weren't forthcoming, Warwick grabbed the lightsaber from Jariel, executing the Coward Crucible leader. Jariel tried to intervene, but Warwick was too fast, and the duo decided to split up to cover the entire school faster. Jariel is slowly becoming wary of Warwick as she notices Demigol's streak. Last time we're going to say this for the for the series. All right, so here's the plan. Using a comm channel so secure, even the Republic can't track it, Roland Dyer will, confet, will contact Cassius Fett, calling in the debt that he owes to Zane. Fett will do this because Carrick saved the lives of ten, tens of thousands of Mandalorians by warning them about the Rat Ghoul outbreak on Jebel before they landed. Next, using Shell's senatorial connections and the Road Moon Project resources, an anonymous tip was escalated to Republic Command that Fett's fleet was, was massing near the Ethor system. Shell, discovering a decades-long enmity between Admiral Saul Carath and Day Schoolyard, and they decided upon the Ethor system because it was the closest system to Carath's battle group. The Admiral literally jumped at the chance to take out Mandalore the Ultimate's aid to camp and an entire Mando fleet in one fell swoop. Then, because Zane knew that such a large battle would attract scavengers looking for new parts, new ships, or even slaves, they leaked the battle's location on the hollow net and back channels. That's easily the cleverest plan Zane's ever thought of. At an asteroid mining facility just outside the Ether system, Admiral Karath prepares his fleet for battle from the deck of his flagship, the Swiftshire. Thanks to a suspiciously well-informed anonymous tip, Karath's forces arrived just before Cassius Fett's Mandalorian fleet dropped out of hyperspace. Republic ships are outnumbered, but Karath likes his odds and prepares for an immense battle, so large that he notes the wreckage will be a prime target for scavengers. Moments later, the Mandalorian ship enters attack formations and make a beeline toward the Republic fleet. 
none of the Mandalorian ships is firing and they seem to be preparing to ram the Republic ships. Impact detection alarms sound above board the Swiftsure as Karath and his crew brace for the inevitable crash that never comes. Just as quickly as they showed up, the Mandalorians all jumped to hyperspace, narrowly averting a head-on collision. Turns out the Mandalorians just needed to give their ships the necessary speed and a long enough, quote, runway, as it were, in real space to make the jump to hyperspace. Yes, that's how it works. The rapid acceleration is known as pseudo-motion and requires a certain amount of runway, as it were. It's really what it's called, and yes, even though it's called pseudo-motion, the ships could still ram objects when jumping to hyperspace. Indeed, hyperspace ramming was a thing in Legends well before The Last Jedi. Right now, Admiral Karath is as confused as everyone who isn't an omniscient narrator. Before he can ask too many questions, the Swiftshire is held by Zane Carrick, a face Karath never wanted to see again. Zane says there are pirates and scavengers in the nearby asteroid field waiting to loot the site of the monumental battle that never occurred. Kareth is furious. He was supposed to do battle with Cassius Fed, and now he's left to clean up pirates at the behest of Carrick. But Zane halts Saul Kareth's bluster and gets straight to the point. It's not just any pirate in the asteroid field. It's Dace Goyard, one of the most wanted criminals in the galaxy. Goyard and Kareth hate one another, and the former Republic captain is 33 years late for his court-martial. Wasting no time, Kareth turns his ships on the asteroid field using numerous tractor beams to trap Gilliard's flagship, the Gladiator, before it could flee. Moments earlier, Dace Gilliard was hidden in the asteroid field, ready to capture new slaves for the Crucible and maybe a new capital ship, too. At present, however, the ex-Republic captain realizes it's too late and that he's wandered into a trap as dozens of Republic boarding parties flood the Gladiator. On the hot prospect, which has been observing from a safe distance, Zane and Roland contact Cassius Fett, and Carrick declares that the Mandalorian feint succeeded by f- facilitating Goyard's capture, and that Dace will give up the coordinates to Asadia. Fett says he was happy to do it, repaying Zane for his help on Jubble. Fett only has two requests. The first is that Zane and Roland finally kill Demigal, who Fett personally detests. The second is that Dyer uphold his end of the bargain and ensure the identity of Roland the Questioner remains dead after Mandalorian propaganda turned him into a martyr. Aboard the Gladiator, Dace finally comes face to face with Admiral Karath, who's been itching to personally settle the score for 33 years. Why does Saul Karath hate Dace Gilliard so much? Well, back in 3996 BBY, Gilliard went AWOL from the forest, forest shipyards as they were attacked by Uli Keldroma during the Great Sith War. Dace fled to safety, but Saul Karath's father was one of the thousands of Republic soldiers and civilians killed that day. Before Dace is hauled off to his overdue court-martial, he gives Zane the location of Osadia and curses all parties involved, hoping they destroy one another. Gilliard also says Shantique had a vision that implored her to leave for Osadia in the middle of dinner. Zane deduces that it was really a force vision, and whatever Shantik saw caused her to drop everything and move crucible operations to Osadia. Jariel is in desperate straits and doesn't even know it, and the hot prospect is a very slow ship, so Carrick decides to call in his final favor. Okay, not so much a favor as leveraging the truth against Admiral Karath. Despite hating Carrick, Karath largely owes his growing legend and meteoric rise through the Republic chain of command to Zane. Not wanting a rogue Jedi as the face of propaganda, Republic Holovids and official news reports attribute Carrick's heroism to Karath. It's fine until now, but now he needs a fast chip to help Jariel, and he's blackmailing Saul Karath to get what he needs. Karath has a choice. Help Zane with one chip or be exposed as a fraud. 
Perhaps unsurprisingly, Carath went with option one, ordering Captain Pete Teleto to ferry Zane, and Zane Griff and Roland to Osadia aboard his ship, the Testament. In hyperspace, Griff and Zane get another chance to work out their remaining trust issues they have. Griff wants to know what kind of games er- game Carrick is playing, since every good break they have is almost always canceled out by a bad break and vice versa. Zane's decision to fake a Mandalorian invasion of Vanquo in order to pull off a heist, only to have the Mandalorians actually invade Vanquo at that exact moment in the Flashpoint arc, being but one perfect example. This leads Zane to explain his interpretation of his unique relationship with the Force, using a chalice of wine to illustrate his point. Carrick says that when he reaches into the Force, he doesn't have the best, uh, quote, grasp of what he's, quote, reaching for, and so it causes fate, the cup of wine, to teeter back and forth between good and bad events. Thus, when when Zane does good deeds, the cup of fate reacts and causes bad consequences to flow from Carrick's actions. For instance, in Vindication, when Lucian used the Force to throw Zane and Griff to safety far away from the Dre estate, uh, after Zane had... uh, facilitated Hazen's death, uh, they landed in a vat of industrial sludge on Coruscant. Conversely, bad bad events caused the cup to fall over to the side of good, causing Zane to have almost preternaturally good luck at times, which I guess he kind of has now that you think about it. Sometimes Zane reminds Griff of his later... Sometimes. Zane reminds Griff of his late arrival to the Padawan Massacre, which led to the first watch circle going ahead with the murder, but also facilitated his escape. The good news for Zane is that he's gotten better at controlling his roles of the Force dice since Vindication. The bad news is currently pretty much everything else. Carrick and the Jedi believed this peculiar relationship to the Force was a result of a learning disability, but Griff sees it differently due to Zane's shadiness about his special project. Griff thought his partner was ripping him off. The Sniffian even began to think that Zane was playing at being a bad luck Jedi the entire time, but that's not right at all, and he knows it. Griff then compares Zane's talent to gambling during games of cards, specifically Pazak. When gambling, the wild swings in good or bad luck are what bankrupts you. It's how you bet during the swings. Now that Zane understands his relationship to the Force a little better, he can see the swings coming, play individuals off one another, adjust his bets accordingly, and let it balance out in the end. Because the Force always seeks balance. Griff then drank the cup of wine, presumably so it wouldn't go to waste. Despite his unorthodox methods, Griff is a better teacher for Zane than Lucian ever was. The series culminates as all the players converge on Osadia. Jariel desperately reaching searches the grounds, but is met by old rival Chantique. Jariel shocked to see the Zeltron alive. She believed this, that Chantique had died earlier after their fight for the trainer position many years earlier. In order to spare her feelings somewhat, Zane didn't reveal the source of the lies about Jarel he heard on Volgax. Jarel, visibly shaken, still has faith in Zane, saying he just needs time and that she explained everything about the Crucible, but Chantique continues her goading, implying that she had sex with Carrick. They didn't, but it's Chantique. What did you expect? She rejoined a slaving organization to nurse an old grudge against Jarel for stopping Chantique from abusing the slave children she was training. Jarel has had enough of Chantique's tawdry implications about her man in the two warriors' fight. Jarel using Exarchun's lightsaber and Chantique using a bunch of weapons that the lightsaber cuts right through. Even without force training, Jarel is still a tremendous fighter and she bests Chantique once again with two roundhouse kicks to the face. Hey, look, I unmuted it this time. I was talking like half the time. I was like, oh, uh-huh. I get it now. 
I just, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jarael appears to be falling to the dark side due to Exarcoon's relic and prepares to execute her downed enemy just like Weirik had earlier. She wouldn't get the chance to finish the deed, though, because Zane Carrick was reaching into the forest to do a good deed. And Zane is nothing if not the very definition of no good deed goes unpunished. As Jarile and, Chant- and Chantique fault, Roland and Zane disembark from the Testament using a jury-rigged de- uh, jetpack to make their descent. Or, stated more accurately, Carrick is dangling in the air, clutching Dyer's arms like a Mandalorian hang glider. Above the school, Carrick free-falls towards the skylight and slows his drop using the Force, while Dyer continues his aerial search, looking to settle accounts with Demigol. However, the immediate consequences of Zane's good deed tip the cup of fate toward a bad outcome, and he falls through the skylight, landing on Jarile's head, injuring her and knocking Kuhn's lightsaber toward Chantique. At least we know that Zane's theory about the Force is correct. Carrick's rushed aid to his friend pushed a dangerous dark side artifact into the clutches of a Force-sensitive with no control over her abilities. Zane, always resilient, immediately rises to face Chantique in a lightsaber duel. Chantique is furious. She was sure Zane wouldn't return that she'd broken him and his knowledge would in turn break Jariel when he didn't show. Lashing out, the Zeltron asks what more evidence could Karak need that Jariel is evil and she enjoyed being part of the Crucible. Zane's already got everything he needs to make a decision, though. After more time processing the Memni, he was able to see clear memories of the children naming Jariel their protector. Their protector from the Crucible generally and from their destroyer, Chantique, specifically. In the end, though, Zane says he didn't need confirmation from the Memni because he knew Jariel, and their split after Volgax had been a bitter mistake on his part. It's one part denunciation of Chantique, one part apology to Jariel. Against all odds, the two seem to have developed a true affection for one another, and Zane's trust in Jariel allowed him to see through Chantique's lies. Then Carrick played his trap card, revealing that Chantique's father was also on Osadia. Chantique tried to call his bluff, but Zane knew that Kuhn's double-bladed saber was strengthening her power in the Force, and he opened his mind, allowing the Zeltron to see everything he had learned about her father. Chantique was broken, at least momentarily. She knew her father sold her into slavery, but didn't remember anything else about him. Not until Zane showed her. Elsewhere at the school, Warwick angrily searches for students only to be interrupted by Roland. Dyer takes out a coma's worth of frustration on Demigol, beating him savagely and throwing him into the wall. Then, probably fearing for his life as much as anything, Weirik screamed and used the force to push Roland into a large stone column, knocking him unconscious. Wait, Weirik's force-sensitive now? This place, is lousy. this place is lousy with untrained force users, apparently. The Zeltron was as shocked as we are and wandered out of the academy in a day, staring at his hands. In another room, Zane helps Jarael Zane helps Jarile out while explaining that Weirik and Demigol are the same person and that her own and explains a little about her own powerful connection to the force via Master Arkajeth. Carrick explains that he's glad they lost the lightsaber because it's a powerful evil artifact and it could have caused Jarail to kill Shantique. Jane and Jarail admits to wanting to kill her nemesis, but just to be rid of Shantique, not because of the lightsaber. Jarrell should be able to feel the power of the dark side flowing off the lightsaber like icy waves of frost, but there's nothing. Unfortunately for the pair, Shantique can definitely feel the dark side and uses her increased force power to throw Zane and Jarrell across the room, pulling Carrick's lightsaber to her. Shantique is in complete control, 
at least until the moment she's stabbed in the back by her father. Warwick and Chantique meet for the first time in almost 20 years in the same place where they left off. Demigol is solely interested in finding his missing students, while Chantique protests that he threw her, his own child, away. Warwick bashes her face, claiming that he's looking for the good children. Chantique relents, telling dear old dad that the students are in the schoolyard. Warwick quickly goes off and to search the ground with Exar Kun and Zane's lightsabers in hand. Zane and Jariel follow and find those students, just like Warwick. For once, though, Chantique didn't lie. Emerging injured from the school, she confirms that they aren't metaphorically in the schoolyard. They are literally in the schoolyard. Chantique had rounded up every student that she could find, and every year she buried one alive in the old schoolyard on Osadia. Some of the students were still alive a few days earlier, but Chantique ended that after her force vision. Warwick drops to his knees, heartbroken. His long quest ended in failure, and he was left with just two students, his triumph, Jariel, and the daughter he sold into slavery. Jariel says she's not Warwick's student any longer. She trusts Zane and his version of events. In a fit of rage, Warwick demands to know why Carrick failed to train Jariel in the Force. But Zane didn't fail her. He simply couldn't train Jariel. In fact, no one could, because he's not Force-sensitive. Because you can't pass Force-sensitivity by blood transfusion. Keep trying to tell you, gosh. Uh, okay, we know what you're thinking. What about her newfound force powers being used to sense imminent danger on the asteroid in an earlier arc? Uh, Zane says there was a tremor on the asteroid, and that's what alerted them. He felt it, too. He just didn't recognize it at the time. Okay, fine, you say. But what about Toki Tolliver, the tiny fox Sith? Was What about when he was choking Jariel and saw something inside of her he wanted to snuff out? Well, presumably that was the genetic relation to Arkajeth because it wasn't the Force. All right, you'll concede that, but didn't she use the Force to save herself and fake Roland on Metalos 3 when they were almost cooked alive in that observatory? Well, that's what we thought, or that's what we were told, and that's what everyone thought, but Weirik now realizes he released them using the Force, he just didn't know it then. Jariel was never Force-sensitive, and neither were any of Weirik's offshoot students. Zane says they might have some kind of connection to the Force due to their genetic relationship to Arkajeth, but it's not Force-sensitivity that can be trained as the Jedi understand it. Jariel's gifts for fighting are natural, her instincts honed by decades of training in Weirik's program, the Crucible, and on the run. Zane only figured it out because she couldn't feel anything from Exarchoon's lightsaber, and while she did intend to kill Chantique, that appears to have been run with the mill homicidal rage. No dark side needed. The Force is strong in Chantique, the daughter that Weirik threw away because Weirik has a strong connection to the Force, which he unwittingly passed to his progeny. The Zeltron mad scientist now knows the same cold hard truth. The Force cannot be past via blood transfusion or genetic splicing. Instead of growing children, he should have just been fathering them all along. Nah, just kidding. He's a terrible father in person. Warwick is having trouble coming to grips with this, though forgive me for not being sympathetic. His entire life's work has been for naught. He sold his one Force-sensitive student, who also happened to be his daughter, into slavery, and he's had the Force the entire time and didn't know it. Roland, joining the conversation, believes that Warwick has been subconsciously using the Force to hide his Force sensitivity from all the Jedi he met along the way. Demogol is a broken man crouched on the dirt where his students lay, but Roland's going to turn the knife even more because that's what you do when someone puts you in a coma and frames you for heinous crimes beyond reckoning. Dyer says that the offshoot researchers knew that if the children were Force sensitive, it had nothing to do with Warwick or its experiments. Rising to his feet, Warwick sees Antique lunge at him with a knife. Using the Force, 
Warwick pulled both Zane and Exarchoon's lightsabers toward him and from across the schoolyard, hoping they would arrive before his daughter could land a killing blow. The first set lightsaber reached him just before Shantique, and he ignited its blue blade directly into her stomach. Actually, blades should have been plural, and the first lightsaber to reach Warwick was Exarchoon's, and the ignition impaled both father and daughter, killing them instantly. Zane's bad luck from landing on Jariel earlier balanced out in the end. He knew his lightsaber would never make it there first. Days later on Coruscant, Jariel, Zane, and Roland mill around one of the city planet's towering apartments. Carrick returned Exar Kun's double-bladed lightsaber to the Jedi, who were just happy to have it back. Uh, now Zane profusely apologizes to Jiraiya for his actions on Volgax and before they split. He says he treated Jiraiya the exact same way she feared people would react when they found out about the Crucible. He knows what it's like to grow up never being good enough and the compromises one has to make being what they are and what they want to be. Zane, Zane knew in his heart that Jeriel never enjoyed her time in the Crucible, and he certainly knew that she would have protected children at all costs. By now, both are crying, and Jeriel notes that the anniversary of their meeting on Terrace is the following day. Carrick remembered and came prepared with an anniversary gift of sorts. From the doorway behind, Jeriel hears a woman meekly call her meekly call her Edessa and turns to find an older Arcanian offshoot couple. Jeriel immediately recognizes them as her mother and father. The couple had not been on Osadia when the crucible struck and so survived both the attack and Warwick's subsequent purge. Roland remembered them from his past questioning and he and Zane tracked them down together. Jeriel and her parents tearfully reunite with hugs and she thanks Zane for everything. Carrick tries to give Roland the credit, but he had already disappeared. Back to a life of questioning, no doubt. The next night... Zane goes to visit Griff and Slusk's restaurant. Good Valor is Little Bivoli is the hottest spot on the planet with every table hosting government deals and needs wired for sound so Griff can bribe the politicians to make a little money on the side. Zane is heading off-world. He's got the Rogue Moon Project to help, and he has rejoined the Jedi Order to help other students who suffer from the same training problems he had as an apprentice. Before departing, Griff has one more request for his old partner and good friend. With Master Chef Slisk in the kitchen, he needs some assistant weighing tables. Zane hesitantly agrees for one night only, and Griff directs him to a customer at the Table 17 who had a kitchen. There, Zane finds Jariel is waiting to celebrate their anniversary. She thanks Carrick for locating her parents, but has a question before he leaves. Zane wants to know if... Jariel wants to know if Zane is the type of Jedi who avoids emotional attachment and physical contact. Carrick confirms that he's perfectly fine with physical contact, so long as it doesn't involve Jariel kicking his ass again. At long last, the couple share a long, passionate kiss, no tricks to buy time, just a real tender moment. As the series ends, the couple officially beginning their relationship with a dance. There's a hidden love story the whole time, just like the Princess Bride. Knights of the Old Republic comic War, written by John Jackson Miller. It's a five-issue miniseries released in 2012. A little meta on this. Chronologically, War is the last piece of the Knights of the Old Republic meta series that occurs before the original KOTOR begins, though there is a six-year uh, gap in between. Despite our love for the main series run of the KOTOR comics, War is frustrating. 
Instead of incorporating the large cast of Zane's gang, War focuses squarely on Zane and a new antagonist who will int- be introduced shortly. Indeed, Griffin and Jariel only appear for a single page each. Miller decided to focus on lesser-known characters like Dal and Morvis. Why? Who the hell knows, but we're keeping it short because the siren call of Malachor Five beckons. Returning characters include Zane Carrick, Captain Dallin Morvis, LV, Slisk, Griff, Admiral Saul Karath, and Jariel. New characters include Dojander Case, a human Jedi Master and former member of the Jedi High Council who resigned his seat to help combat the Mandalorian menace. He leads a team of Jedi members of the Feda Militia against the Mandalorians in battle. There's Zara Lustin, a Twi'lek Jedi Master and member of the Dantooine Jedi Enclave Council. Lustin is one of the four Dantooine Council members who work with Revan and Bastilla in Knights of the Old Republic and serves as the historian by that time. Acquits himself nicely in lightsaber combat and war, though, so good for him. Ko Sornell is a female Devorian Mandalorian with distinctive blonde made of hair who worked as a signals expert for the Mandalorian Knights. Comes indebted to Zane after he saved Ko and her son, Guido, during the Battle of Essen. Our old locations are Coruscant and Dantooine, and our new locations include Essene, part of the Halthor sector in the Outer Rim. The Mandalorians attacked the Republic there, and the two sides fought a bloody battle. There's Halthor, a, quote, useless planet, unquote, in the Outer Rim that the Mandalorians invaded after Essene. There's Fado, which is Zane's homeworld, and the location of the Fado militia, drafted into the service by the Republic to counter Mandalorian attack. The Fado system is also home to Fadacom, the Bith-managed high security space station at the edge of the system. And there's Rendilly, home of Rendilly Hyperworks, the inventors of the Hammerhead Corvette. Timeline? Holy shit, we finally left 3963 behind, and we are in early 3962 BBY. It's nine, nine episodes we stayed in 3963. <laughs> oh, story. The intro is going to be longer than the story here. Anyway, there are six overarching important takeaways from the miniseries. First, Zane is conflicted about the right path to choose as he bounces back and forth between Force conscriptions, fighting for and against the Mandalorians, and eventually has to choose a side between the two. Second, the redemption of Dallin Morvis, which I don't think anyone asked for, but it kind of works. Uh, third, the use of Trojan horses to trick enemies is frankly outrageous. This miniseries is lousy with Trojan horses. Fourth, the Kotor comics finally really end where the 2003 RPG finally truly begins at the Jedi Enclave on Tantooine. You know, after you get off of the Indar Spire and Terrace. R.I.P. Trask Olgo. Fifth, Damn, it sucks to be a Jedi youngling. It just seems to suck a lot. And sixth, and finally, we learn a little background on Hammerhead Corvettes. In early 3962, Zane is visiting his parents on Feda. They just moved back to Zane's homeworld from Dantooine. Unfortunately, as soon as he arrived on Feda, Carrick was drafted into the Feda Militia, a group of conscripts taken by the Republic to defend small worlds in the area. Worlds like Essene, where the Battle of Essene is underway. Republic forces are led by Dorjander Case, a former member of the Jedi High Council who left to fight with Revan against the Mandalorians. Zane is nearly killed by Captain Dallin Morvis, who's still acting like an all-around jackass. He orders surrendering Mandalorian soldiers be killed, and subsequently a midnight attack on the supposed Mandalorian encampment, using what looks to be the Star Wars equivalent of napalm. 
Both times, Morvis nearly kills Warwick. The first is Zane was recusing a Devorian Mandalorian and their small child from the onslaught, and the second when he was trying to warn the sleeping Mandalorians of a napalm attack, but found it was a ruse. The Mandalorians dressed battle droids in their armor and made a fake camp before waiting for the Republic attack. They knew it was coming because Case had given the order for Morvis to, new na- to use napalm and then immediately betrayed that information to the Mandalorians. It's revealed that Dorjander Case betrayed the Republic um, to become a leader of the Republican of the Mandalorian Knights, a small group of Jedi who would defect to his cause. And now Zane, who gets the choice of being conscripted to fight against the Republic or go into the slave pens to be sold. It sounds bad, but Zane sees that at last the Mandalorians took prisoners and gave a choice. Morvis and the Republic are solely using scorched earth tactics. After departing Essien under the, under the lead of Case's uh, Mandalorian knights, much of the fate of militia, the slave pin, much of the fate of militia chose the slave pins over fighting the Republic forces they had been serving a day earlier. Zane and Morvis participate in an attack on the nearly barren world of Halthor. Carrick does his best to stop the Mandalorians from slaughtering wounded and surrendering Republic soldiers, but it goes about as well as you'd expect. Uh, Rake, I guess. Uh, the rally master in charge of, Zane, of Zane's group of conscripts nearly kills Morvis for whining multiple times. The captain is being forced to fight his own people, an action that is against the Republic's laws of war. Craig points out that Morvis didn't care too much about those laws on Essien, and the Mandalorians don't care about them, period. The Mandalorians overrun Halthor and gather to hear a big speech from Dojander Case. The former Jedi lauds the Mandalorian's nomadic lifestyle, says he and his knights will provide the Mandalorians with Jedi of their own, and lauds their work-life balance. No, really, he, he illustrates the superior, superiority of Mandalorian customs and life to that of the Republic by talking about Ko Sornel and her family. They raise their family, including two very young children, on the front lines, while also fat fighting in battles and keeping the Mandalorian cause going strong. Many of the Mandos are skeptical of Force users, but Case reassures them that he will help lead them to victory against the Republic. After the speech, Morvis still doesn't understand that he's not in charge and gets his ass kicked by Ko Sornel. Zane steps in to plead for Dallin's life, and he realizes that Ko is the Deveronian woman he saved on Essien. Despite their distrust of Jedi, Sarnell takes Zane uh, into her tent uh, with her family to show him how great Mandalorian life is. Unfortunately, that also means taking in Morvis, who is only alive because Zane keeps sticking up for him. That night, the captain goes to kill Ko while she's sleeping, but stops himself before being caught and thrown into the slave pens for his repeated treachery. Meanwhile, Zane and Case have a chat. The next stop is Feta, Zane's homeworld, and where his family now lives. Carrick agrees to help Case so long as they use his plan so that the innocent beings of Feta don't suffer and die from an invasion. Also, the Mandalorian lifestyle does seem much better than the Republic. Well, for a couple more issues anyway. Uh, of interest of maybe like 10 people, Zane handwrites a message that he asks Ko to send as, to send to a friend. Ko is a signal relay and comms ex, uh, specialist, so that's convenient. The message is innocuous and written on an old piece of metal and chalk. Again, handwriting is basically non-existent in Star Wars, but this is our second look at it in the KOTOR comics. In the Outer Rim, Zane Carrick sits alone in the cockpit of Captain Morvis's old hammerhead corvette, the Reciprocity. See, all of Case's plans require using the Reciprocity as a Trojan horse to get Republic worlds to lower their shields for an innocuous Republic ship. 
Once the world does this, three Mandalorian dreadnoughts carrying more than 100,000 soldiers in total and every type of ordnance ever needed attack any ships or defensive stations protecting the world. That plan worked at Hawthor, but the people of Feta aren't rubes like the rest of the Outer Rim. Well, they probably are, but they were at least smart enough to stop the reciprocity and divert it to their large, high-security space station on the edge of the system, Fatacom. Well, this is good in theory. That was Zane and Dorjander's plan from the jump as they targeted the signal relay systems aboard Fatacom. The space station has a med bay where Zane, the Mandalorian Knights, and the Mando strike team lie in body bags, having supposedly fallen victim to a contagious biological attack to get the jump on guards. Eventually, however, the strike team grows impatient and blows their cover, jumping out of the body bags and killing all guards. Zane is horrified, but Case says that the Mandalorians are warriors, and throwing a sliced blaster says there's no stun setting in war. Carrick's feint was mostly successful, despite his misgivings, because Fatacom is so well defended by a minefield and exterior weapons, it's manned by a skeleton crew of guards, so the Mandalorians take it with no further casualties. Further, because Feta is the first world and system encountered in the Outer Rim when heading due Galactic North, Fetacom also acts as a massive signal relay. It provides all communications, Republic transmissions, and access to the holonet for dozens of sectors, and the Mandalorians have just shut off all contact at the source. There's no hope of getting a rescue from the Republic in time, which is why Case picked the Feta system in the first place. On Fetacom, Co tells Zane that she sent his earlier handwritten message and just received a reply. But why would he contact a restaurant? Well, hell, welcome back, Griff, who provides Zane with the info he needed about Dorjander Case. We get to see LB relaxing at the restaurant and and Slisk helping out as Griff's always trusty sidekick. Slisk was really an underrated character. We'll miss him. At least I will. Griff's restaurant is running a patriotic... I I don't know. Kelsey might not miss him. I'll miss him. I have no idea. Um, (laughs) Uh, sorry. Uh, Griff's restaurant is running a patriotic review and another attempted morale booster by the Republic. Although this one seems to be working good valor and the Valorettes as they are known, uh, are packing the house every night. Griff also says that Zane should have let him buy off the attorneys and officials to get, to get out of his, her original conscription into the fate of militia. So maybe this entire this entire thing was all Zane's Trial of the Spirit, a Dark Knight of the Soul type adventure he had to undertake, or maybe the Force just did what it wanted as ever. Either way, Griff also found a huge Defense Ministry file on Case, and surprise, he's got skeletons in his closet. A lot of skeletons. After receiving this info, Zane pieces the scheme together and confronts Dorjander about his plans to attack the peaceful remote world of Dantooine. Turns out the defense ministry is apparently like a lot like the CIA and they just keep files on whoever they like. The one they had on Dorjander case uh, went back 30 years to the time he was captured by Mandalorians and returned following their destruction at Onderon and Duxun. The case wasn't just a prisoner. He chose to live amongst them and adopted the Mandalorian customs. Turns out case didn't step down from the high council at all. The defense ministry didn't trust him and engineered his removal. He was replaced by Lucian Dre, which means Hazen had a hand in case's removal too. So technically the Sith influenced, influenced it. Wow. The Republic is shockingly inept. Uh, Case has been a strident advocate against the Jedi joining the war, but after his removal, he joined Revan's cause as a means to get to the Outer Rim easily. Then he gathered knights. Uh, then he gathered knights to his cause and prepared to strike against the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine to kidnap the younglings to grow his new army of Force sensitives. 
Yep, Case's entire plan was one big kidnapping. But it was a good plan. While Essen and Hathor seemed like useless worlds to attack, Case needed to gain a Republic ship like reciprocity, and so engineered attacks in remote worlds where the entire Republic contingent could be destroyed quietly. Recently, he took Fatacom to shut off comms to and from the Republic for all the outer rim systems in the north quadrant of the galaxy. Finally, they'll use reciprocity as a Trojan horse again, lulling Dantooine into lowering their shields and then kidnapping the younglings with three Mando dreadnoughts, making sure things go smooth. Zane figured it all out, but all out with a little help from Griff. Well, almost everything. Carrick believed Case would kill children, but George Ander says he would never kill younglings, and neither would the Mandalorians. They will raise the kids in the Mando traditions. George Ander then talks about his lost Mandalorian love, Varda. They were expecting a child when the Republic bomb killed Varda, and, kind of surprised, the bomb was dropped by a Jedi. Essentially, Case is mad his wife died at the hands of a force, using Stooge of the Republic instead of a fair fight against regular soldiers. So, it's a kidnapping to indoctrinate children into a different religious warrior cult than the one in which they currently reside. Mandalorian proselytizing is almost as bad as, well, you know, proselytizing. Dorjander has Zane thrown in the brig for figuring out his scheme. The old Jedi leaves the job of locking Carrick up to course Arnell, but since she and many other Mandalorians were already doubting Case and his Jedi, she frees Zane after he explained the situation. She lets him go because he saved the life of her son Guido earlier and because he swears an oath to stop Case but not warn Dantooine in the Mandalorian tongue. Zane travels back to Hawthor because he needs a modest crew to help him steal a Mandalorian dreadnought. A ship that, a ship that normally has 30,000 soldiers to run everything. But Zane didn't need everything. He just needed a few, to fool a few people for a few minutes. Thus, Carrick tricked a Mandalorian quartermaster into leaving 30 or so sets of Neo-Crusader armor and helmets lying around. He then distributes them to members of the Feta Militia who are in the process of trying to escape from the slave pens. Zane also has a bunch of buckets of Balrat stew, an awful-smelling staple of the Mandalorian diet. Morvis still thinks he's in charge and nearly blows the whole deal before they even get off the ground. By now, Zane's had enough of his bullshit and berates him in front of the troops. Morvis uses his family's money and power to get plum gigs and get out of trouble. Morvis is a bad leader because he orders men to their deaths on a whim and he's cruel to both his friends and enemies. Morvis is going to get them killed because he won't shut his goddamn mouth on Halthor despite, well, everything. Uh, Carrick turns to board the shuttle to one of the dreadnoughts, but Morvis has finally seen the light. He begs Carrick to take him along because the reciprocity was the last favor he had, a gift from a gift from Saul Karath after the Republic blamed Morvis for the Van Gervalis chain debacle. Uh, okay, the last part isn't his fault. Morvis sucks a lot, but he didn't have anything to do with the Republic's bad AI system. Anyway, Zane welcomes him aboard, and the crew... Uh, the crew successfully pulls off Carrick's plan involving tricking the Mandalorians on the dreadnought Panjal into believing that they were suffering from an outbreak of Jedi brain fever. They use the foul brain or bile rat stew to look like pus pockets taking over their heads and the superstitious Mandalorians take the bait, fleeing the supposed contagion and the evil Jedi in the Panjal's escape pods in charge of the ship. Zane and crew head to Dantooine to stop a kidnapping. A brief flashback says Reprocity being constructed over Rindili, and we find out that Hammerhead Corvette actually offended the authorians as Hammerhead was a derogatory term for their species. Rindili- that We can't just have nice things. They just wouldn't leave it alone. <laughs> 
so weird. Go ahead. No, it's great. I love I love the idea of having gotten to the point of building an entire category of ship and then not realizing like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were like, oh, wait a minute. That's a slur. <laughs> ah, it's fine. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Right. Whoop-a-doo. Rindilli Hyperworks apparently didn't do this on purpose, but now we know. Republic captains also hated them because the wide, flat front deck of the ship that spawned its name was difficult to control on land. The Reciprocity is about to land on Dantooine, but Coach Rennell has joined the ship as Signal's relay commander. She, tell you, she tells Case he wanted to be near the fight and punched the old Signal relay guy out in one uppercut. Dorjander is impressed as Co reminds him of his lost love, Varda. Little does he know, Sornell uses the station as to cover up reports about Zane's actions on the Panjal. On Dantooine, all hell breaks loose as the Mandalorians attack. Jedi try to protect their Padawans, but they are no match for the superior force of Mandos and a few former Jedi Knights. Case orders no blaster fire, and all the younglings are rounded up with no casualties. Jedi Masters and Knights are rounded up and locked away, but not before Masters are Lestin duels Dorjander Case. Lestin, the Twilight historian, gets the better of the Mando warrior before he surrendered at the sight of a Mandalorian dreadnought, threatening to blow the Academy up away from space. Case tells the younglings that the Jedi lost their way and he's freeing them, but the shuttle lands. Neo-Crusaders pour out, led by a warrior in yellow armor named Glomkettle. The Mandalorian Scoutmaster takes the lead, saying that they received orders from Mandalore the Ultimate himself. Glomkettle's report has Case fooled, and this obvious ruse looks to be working, until George Anderson says something as often ends the game. Zane is revealed to be Glom Kettle, and Case's forces have the Republic soldiers surrounded, but Carrick prepared for any bad luck and used a remote detonator to blow up the shuttle, killing the other Mandalorian knights. The explosion works as all the Republic soldiers make for the reciprocity, where the younglings have already been gathered. They are able to take off, but Case uses his jetpack to follow, and Zane decides to buy the ship enough time to reach orbit and save the kids. Using the jetpack on his Glom Kettle armor, Zane flies directly at Case, plowing both through the skylight of the Dantooine Jedi Enclave. Zane and Case rise, dueling in front of the Chain Jedi Masters. Case gets the upper hand because he's a better duelist and also knees, knees Zane in the groin. This is the second time Mandalorian armor has been shown to be weak in the crotch. It looks like this will be the untimely end of Zane Carrick, but he's rescued by Ko Sornell. The Deveronian warrior tells Dorjander that the other Mandalorians banded together and decided he was a shitty boss, so the other two dreadnoughts never even left Halthor. Also, Ko and Harm are expecting their third child now. They had enough of the creepy Jedi and their weird powers. Carrick's uh, play, play on the on their superstition using the Jedi brain fever appears to have been a masterstroke in retrospect. Before any further death occurs, Zane remembers the Jedi way and uses a photo of Case's deceased wife, Varda, to bring him back from the edge of darkness or whatever this was. Carrick reminds Dorjander that his wife was killed by a Jedi dropping bombs on orders from the Republic. If Case killed Ko Sornell, he'd be visiting the same suffering he lived through on harm and their kids, and he'd be a Jedi killing them on orders from the Mandalorians. For once, the powers of debate actually work, and Case relents, seeing the error of his ways. Zane frees the assembled masters, and Tsar Lestin takes Case into custody under the condition that the Jedi allow Ko Sornell to return to her people, which they do. Lestin praises Karak to the hilt, and the young Jedi seems truly touched. Back on Coruscant, a truly changed Dallin Morvis receives credit for stopping the Mandalorian attack on Dantooine. 
Morvis didn't ask for it, but the Republic needed a win so badly, they threw the captain and his returning soldiers a parade upon their arrival. Morvis receives a medal from his mother, the senator of Chandrila. Dorjander Case and his remaining Mandalorian knights, meanwhile, received a trial in the Senate building, like Ulla Caldroma and fake Demigol. Republic would regret this, however, as Case filibustered the August body for its many sins over a period of nine hours. Nine hours. Kosarnell and their family reunite happily and rejoin the Mandalorian fight, while Zane finally gets to hang out with his girlfriend Jariel in their new apartment on Coruscant. Unfortunately, his four sisters have been visiting and regaling Jariel with embarrassing tales from childhood. Zane and Jariel embrace, and she even makes a joke about being the reward for completing the big adventure, which is what she was in this arc. Zane takes some time with Jariel, but he knows he has to get back to the war because he's not only rejoined the Jedi Order, he's joined Ravalin fighting for the Republic. Aboard the Hammerhead Corvette Reciprocity, Zane acts as a special diplomat and official conscience for his Republic liaison, Dallin Morvis. With that, the Knights of the Old Republic comics fade to black. Thank you for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. We will take a short break for a week or so to handle real world stuff, but after that, it's Knights of the Old Republic, the game. And we'll begin where it all ended and the galaxy changed forever, Malachor 5. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton-KB on Twitter. And I'm Lucas Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.